Hi, this is Corey from New Orleans, Louisiana. Welcome to the Legendarium. If I'm brown, Aja, does that mean I can just like not talk to anybody? You're just sure. Mm. You have to have a lot of cats. Though. Oh, okay. you have to have a lot of cats, and you have to have a lot of books. So you're so you're right there. there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Alright, welcome back everybody. It is episode number 114, The Great Hunt, part 1. This is book 2 of The Wheel of Time. That was all very confusing. Uh, I'm Craig Hanks, and let's go ahead and introduce the rest. Uh, Well, if he had only 6 months to live, do you know what he'd want to do? Well, I don't care. I'd make him record about 150 episodes of The Legendarium. It's Ryan Bruckman. (laughs) Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I keep trying to find a way to tell him just how I feel, but I run out of middle fingers really quick. It's Ken Johnson. Yeah, you've bought spare middle fingers, I think, to tell me how I feel. And his feel. version of resistance training is refusing to go to the gym. It's Kyle the Great Hunt. Well, I mean, who needs, you know, cardio? Yeah, I've always <laughs> felt this way. My old enemy. Uh, and by the way, we do also have on the line uh, Corey. Corey is uh, one of our listeners. He's one of our $5 Patreon donors. Real quick, Corey, go ahead and say hi. Oh, he might be it, muted. You, you told him to walk Yeah, away. that's fine. That's fine. Um, so, Corey, <laughs> yeah. We'll, oh, there he is. I found him. He laughed. Uh, hi. Hey, Corey. So, Corey's going to be joining us a little bit later in the episode. Corey, you are one of our $5 Patreon donors. Just wanted to say thank you very much for that. Oh, I am? I thought I pressed a dollar. (laughs) 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 Whoops. Uh, Well, we're all about to get very rich off of Corey. Uh, Cool. Well, like I said, we will bring Corey in uh, in just a a little while. He's going to be... Uh, piping in, I don't know, three quarters of the way through the episode. So we'll hear from him in a little while. But let's uh, go ahead with the episode. Um, would you guys want an intro? I got a lot of complaints last time. You forgot the intro. Hey, you forgot the intro. So probably, I probably should have it an intro. It would be nice then. to have a little bit of a recap. Something. So yeah, basically, the reason people seem to like the recap is they're like, I don't know how much of the book you're talking about. Well, the answer is all of it. But I'm going to go ahead and do a a recap of the book anyway, so bear with me. Here we go. Remember that time that there was this giant pool of magic power and Rand used it up to kill the Dark One? And remember how the Horn of Valir was in there and it's going to call a bunch of dead heroes back from the grave and how nobody blows it because I forgot why? Uh, (laughs) Okay, so you remember that. That's good. Right, so we start the book that's all about the Great Hunt of the Horn with our heroes already in possession of said horn. This is lucky because it's a really short book with almost no conflict at all. Right. Just kidding. Padon Fane and his Trollocs and Dark Friends have stolen the horn, so the boys, led by the Shinaran Lord, Lord Ingtar, go on a daring, dangerous quest to retrieve it, while the girls go to boarding school. At <laughs> boarding school at the Vagina Island School of Witchcraft and Definitely Not Wizardry. <laughs> Uh, if you don't get that joke, go just go Google map of Tarvalin. Uh, oh so, gosh. <laughs> so it sounds like a, a good adventure, right? Well, it kind of is. If the boys don't catch up to the horn and with it the dagger from Shadar Logoth, then Matt will die. So there's some urgency there. Plus, if Pot on Fane blows the horn, the 
all those heroes will serve him. So there's some urgency there, too. And on the girl's side of things, if they forget to use the honorific term Sedai after somebody's name, they might have to wash dishes. So there's plenty of urgency there, too. <laughs> Well, luckily for the left-out ladies, there's a storyline switcheroo, because just as we're beginning to lose interest in the manly quest, the girls are unknowingly let off by a member of the feared Black Aja, and Egwene is sold into literal collar-and-leash slavery, and Nynaeve, Elaine, and Min have to bust her out of there. The storylines finally collide in an excellent ending in which Matt blows the horn, Perrin does less than nothing, Ingtar was a dark friend the whole time, Egwene beats the crap out of her captor, and Rand battles the Dark One again, and is uh, then given no choice but to proclaim himself the Dragon Reborn. Thus ends book two. There you go. So, Ken, what did you think of The Great Hunt? I thought it was better than The Eye of the World. Yeah? Yeah. Um, the Eye of the World didn't catch me quite as much. I had to slog through that one. The Great Hunt, I was interested in uh, pretty much from the beginning. And yeah, it got better and it got faster. And I was really disappointed in the first two-thirds of the book about how the women were, the, the not the treatment, but the treatment, the writing treatment of the women, because it was just boring. But the men were kind of exciting. But I thought that was that was a well done recap in terms of the men do this, women do that. Yeah, Ryan, what about you? This is uh, your first time through in fifteen years. Not quite fifteen, I think. Maybe. Oh yeah, maybe hey, it we're is. getting pretty old, man. Yeah, we are. Yeah, you are. Um, <laughs> I so basically having gone through up through book nine before I got it. I was getting into this one. when we finished either world. I was like, I was pretty sure half of what I read in here happened in the great hunt. So I'm not sure what I'm about to go through again, <laughs> which is nice. Cause it allows me to almost re-experience the series as if it were the first time. Um, and I really, uh, I enjoy the great hunt quite a bit. It moved quickly, uh, for the most part for me, uh, which not, not every moment in this series does. Uh, but this one moved pretty quick. And I, it actually, I had a very, very hard time, not like as a criticism of the writing or anything like that, um, with Egwene when she gets captured by the Shan Chan. Mm -hmm. uh, that like legitimately actually angered me uh, inside. I was very, very Oh, angry. no, I, th I think it's the yeah. opposite of, uh, as a, of a criticism. That was a great bit. Uh, there's the part when... Um, I mean, you get this sense through the entire time, but then Nynaeve, she's going to go bust out Egwene, and she has to put on the collar and the and the bracelet, and so she feels what these women are doing to the slave women, mm -hmm. uh, and he writes very evocatively about how that feels and how angry it makes Nynaeve. Yeah. Well, okay, that could anything makes naive angry but <laughs> yeah. you get what i'm saying and i feel like the a good portion of of this book that he there's a lot in there to get invested in uh in this uh which isn't always the case when your entire book is hey let's we're gonna chase something we're chasing this it's uh <laughs> take for example and i'm treading on dangerous ground here uh, i'm very excited the two towers when uh -huh. they're having to chase down mary and pippin um very interesting things happen in that, but eventually I like kind of get tired of just chase. Like, let, let something. It's happen. like a chapter long. <laughs> My gosh. Let's let's get to the point where we're actually. Anytime you're doing a chase sequence in a book, at a certain point you're kind of like, something needs to happen in this chase sequence, and it was bothering me that they're always a day ahead. They're always a day ahead. They're always a day ahead. They're always a day ahead, and then finally, you know, 
something, something happens. happens. Yeah. Uh, and even when Rand gets ahead through the portal stones. Which is it, a very cool thing. Which is a, a good bit. Uh, yeah. But even when he does that, you're uh, you're sitting there waiting for them to catch up. And then they catch up. And then you like sit around for a while in Kyrian. And you're like, wait, why, why are you just sitting in an inn with this? You know, it's bizarre. Which is very real to, I mean, if this, if you were trying to time it's it It's very out, real to life. <laughs> as much as this is real to life, that would be very Hurry real up. to life. Like, oh, we got ahead of them. Well, we're just going to have to sit and wait at the yeah. end for them Hurry to get here. Hurry up and wait. Hurry <laughs> up and wait. Uh, Kyle, do you have any thoughts on your 18th time through uh, this book? Well, it's it's the horniest book in the series. <laughs> well, that's true. So, How long have you been um, sitting on that joke? Forever. <laughs> no, actually, just since the intro, I was like, oh, yeah, actually, that works. Um no, there's a couple things that I really dig about The Great Hunt. We talked about in The Eye of the World that there is no MacGuffin. There's no, like, end goal, really, that's declared. But this is straightforward from the front. we got to find the horn mm-hmm. at all costs, basically. And so that's your, your adventure in a nutshell for, mm-hmm. this, for this book. Um, but what I really love about The Great Hunt in contrast to The Eye of the World is The Eye of the World like we talked about the last couple episodes um, is setting up this giant world. It's kind of more Tolkien esque, but the great hunt is where I feel like Robert Jordan really breaks loose into his own. Um, Although I do still have some good Tolkien references. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean they still, they still are, you know, laced throughout the entire series and we'll see that all the way up through book 14, but he just blows this wide open with point of view characters with, different political plots and schemes that are going on. Um, There's just so much more going on in this book and it branches out into so many different directions where we get to go with the girls to the white tower and on the adventure with the boys. And we see behind the scenes for certain white cloak things that are going on. We meet the Sean Chen and we get a, you know, and we, we get a Bale Doman point of view chapter or a few points of view chapter chapters. And, we get into the minds of different characters and we're spreading out throughout the world and seeing how these three Taviran boys are really pulling on the pattern all across land, Rand land to, uh, and people don't even realize that that's what's actually happening. So speaking of blowing things wide open, I was shocked because uh, like Ryan, it's been years since I read this stuff and there were things that I remembered. I remembered that Egwene got leashed. I remembered uh, who the Sean Chan were vaguely. Uh, what else was there? I remembered kind of going to Kyrian and all the stuff about the great game. But I, in my mind, that was all stuff from like book five or six or something. And I was shocked at how much stuff was in this book like you say the world is kind of blown wide open and you get to see a lot more of what's going on uh so that really took me by surprise and ryan i think that was the same for you yeah i I was telling him a little bit earlier that um there's uh, you know a half dozen or so moments in the in the series that really stood out to me or or things that stood out to me and when i had finished the great hunt and when i've uh, you know i've read a little further ahead but I've, i've been able to check off most of the things i remember off my list already um, I think the last one on my list is like a, a cat medallion or something that Matt's supposed to wear or something like that. Other than that, I... Oh, gosh, I'd forgotten. Uh, something I, like that. I don't remember that. But it, like, they've pretty much all been checked off my list already. And I went, wow, I, I could have sworn this was all later on that we were much deeper into the series before all this happened. 
uh, which speaks, I don't know, does that speak positively or negatively that everything good I remembered is done in the first <laughs> two and three books? <laughs> uh i don't know let's we'll find out well yeah we're we're gonna get to those middle books and the the great criticism of the wheel of time is like books what seven through ten or something like that and so we'll see when we get there if mm -hmm. path um, of daggers on is what i've generally found to be the consensus until sanderson picks it up yeah, it's, we'll it's really interesting too because i think a lot of that criticism comes from old school fans who were waiting on books um so, you know, Path of Daggers would come out and they would read it and it feels somewhat like half a book um, because I've always kind of... It is a long half book. Well, yeah, having <laughs> having read the series a couple of times, I've always thought that, and as much as I, as I you know, love Team Jordan and everything, the worst thing that Robert Jordan ever did was marry his editor um, because I think that things weren't cut out quite as much. Well, don't in the tell her that. Well, I, well, not... You know what I mean. <laughs> From a literary standpoint, <laughs> um, it's good, honey. It's he good. started writing. He started writing really, really long books to where they couldn't be published, and you'd have to cut them in half to actually bind them together. Because it feels like some of those later books are like the first half of a, a complete book, and then so the first book feels super slow and just setting a bunch of stuff up and then the second book will just take off and be the kind of action pack action pack whatever so yeah. it's interesting um but i think a lot of that criticism especially you know people will scout out this series and say oh well it's 14 books long i'm gonna go dig into it a little bit before i actually decide to commit to it and they'll see these criticisms that oh, there's a giant slog in the middle or later but that comes from the old school readers who would read Crossroads of Twilight, which is widely regarded as the worst book in the series or the, the slowest, which is book 10. Oh, that's the one and, I stalled out on twice. And they'll say, <laughs> oh, good. You know, because <laughs> they read Crossroads, Crossroads of Twilight and there's a whole bunch of place setting, but there's not a lot of action that actually happens mm -hmm. until Knife of Dreams. And people will be like, oh, I stalled out on that because I had to wait two and a half years or three years for the next book to come out. And so I'm done. That yeah. one was, if, if I've got to wait for three years for another book, that's going to be similar to that. No, thanks. When that really kind of sucks because knife of dreams just cranks it up to 11. And because well, I mean, it is yeah. book 11 after all. Well, you know, <laughs> this one goes to 11. Uh, <laughs> but now, but now that they're all out, it don't have to worry about all. That. Well, that's the thing is now that they're all out, you can just pick up the next one and go. And it, it like I said, in my mind, it helps to think of some of the later books as, or even just think of the whole series, all 14 books, as just one giant book. It's good for somebody like book. me because I've got the next three sitting at home just waiting for me. Yeah. Like, all right. Um, well, let's talk about this book, yeah, perhaps. Get back into uh, it. Now, yeah, now that we're almost 15 minutes in, uh, let's talk about just your bullet points. I mean, you guys hopefully have a lot of notes, things to talk about. I know I do. Uh, it. I typed out all my notes from my Kindle last night. It took me about two and a half hours to just to transfer them to where I could read them better. Uh, anyway, so Ryan, what's your first? And then Ken will go to you next. Right. So be ready. I'm trying. Uh, I'm trying not to jump straight to the end of the book because there's some. Yeah, really let's stay. Yeah, let's try to stick toward the first half, maybe. Um, so I want to actually jump into. The witchcraft and wizardry school. Oh yes, the the uh, vagina island school of witchcraft and definitely not wizardry. Yeah, so in Tarvalon, um, the White Tower, where they're all being trained. Um, 
I think this is one of the few moments inside this book where we're doing world building. Um, book one, there was a lot of world building, getting to know what's going on. This is in um, Great Hunt. We don't have a lot of that. We're running with the Shinarans, other than now we know of the White Tower. We know what's going on there. And the first thing that I want to say about that is I appreciate that uh, by the end of this book, we see that it is not a... S I'm not, I don't mean safe space in the way that it's used now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a housing of all goodness. Um, it's oh, not a so, Hogwarts. Uh, yeah, so there is some danger to be had at, there's, in Tarvalin, you mean? Yeah, I mean, there's the Black Aja. We discover that they're there. You've got uh, the different groupings within uh, that have their own itineraries and, and drives, things like that, the different Ajas. Um, I was talking with a friend about about uh, this series, and she she loves it. And she asked me, so what Aja would you be if you were an Aes Sedai? And I was like, oh, You're I'm like gonna, red. I'm, <laughs> I hate men. Um <laughs> I'm like I'm gonna pose that to the guy to the guys, but I think uh, for me, I, I was like I'm either blue or green. I gotta. Oh, so you love men? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I, there's I'm anything ahead, wrong with. I that. think I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but green is actually the battle aja. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh, cool. So, okay. Hence yeah. all the warders, not right. just the man love affair. Okay. You know, I hey. love sweaty men fighting. That's what it is. Listen, <laughs> I, if you're gay, I'm that. fine with that. I just might want to, you know, have a little chat with your wife. Yeah, I think she might want to <laughs> know about that, too. <laughs> I, I have heard, by the way, at varying times that Ryan is between 17 and 30. Oh, no, wait, there's somebody else. Never mind. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Uh, do you want to pose your question then? What, yeah, what, what Aja would basically, we, be? we don't I, have a ton of information, but yeah, what, on what you know is, now, what Aja would you pick? And we'll revisit this when we know more about about the different objects. If I'm brown Aja, does that mean I can just like not talk to anybody? It just sure. Mean, you have to have a lot of cats, though. Oh, okay. You have to have <laughs> a lot of cats, and you have to have a lot of books. So, uh, yeah, he's ha so he's you're actually so right you're right there. there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, based on what we know now, I know there's like four that we don't know anything about at this point, but I might go with blue just because, from what I know, they're the ones that like get to go out and like do some stuff. That's cool. They they take on causes, how they're known. Like they they meddle in causes is what they what, what they say. They seem to be the ones that are out there. Yeah, the red are. I don't like the red. I mean, I I think that's Wait. by design. We're not supposed to really like the red. They're, they seem to be the zealots, the hardliners that you know. That's uh, one thing about the Ajas so far is that that's kind of a little frustrating to me is that they're they're shortcuts in the same way that Tolkien would be like, okay, so this is an orc. That gives you everything you need to know about yeah. them, or, or the dwarves, or the exactly. elves. And I mean, that's not quite true. I, Tolkien fans, believe me, I, I know I, that's not quite true. But uh, or a great example is: Did you guys ever read the Redwall series? Yep. Uh, yeah. Where all the characters are animals mm -hmm. in this animal kingdom, but it's it's just a medieval fantasy. You're a mouse. You're a good guy. But yeah, if you're a mouse, you're a good guy. If you're a rat, you're a bad guy. If you're a stoat, you're a bad guy. If you're a if you're a badger, you're a good guy. You know, mm. it's so everything represents something else. So these ajas, it's like, oh, you're you're blue. You're adventurous. You're green. You like men. You're red. You're a bitch. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Uh, but you know what I mean? That's like, how it's painted, yeah, absolutely. So far, and I I'm hoping that as the books go on, there will be some differences. Uh, and, and you know things will well, break out of that mold. But I think even right now there's there's a few of them that break out of that mold because if you look at Varen, I was about to just Varen, yeah. is, Varen is Varen is, Varen is brown. brown Aja, and Brown is known for basically 
living in the library and not doing anything. Right, never, but she heads anything. out with Rand. But Varen is all about being out in the world and like and learning and experiencing things that way. I mean, she still has her tendencies to like get stuck in her notes and be kind of absent-minded mm-hmm. or appear absent-minded. But uh, she's definitely the anomaly when it comes to like breaking the Aja stereotype. Isn't that kind so, of a trope though of a fantasy? You've got the one person who like, oh, they're breaking out of the conventional mold and they're, um, you know, they're, they're the bookish, no. you know, mousy. Eh, she kind of, but I think she, I, one of the things that I really like about Varen is that um, because she figures out these two blue sisters, Swan Sanche, the Armorland Seat, and Moraine's their plan, she kind of just puzzles it out and there's this, this great scene with them uh, like, oh, are we going to have to kill her? Are we going to have to, what's going on here? Um, and, uh, I, I, but, but she decides that this cause is worth following. This is something worth following. And so even though she's, it's not the logic of the white, mm-hmm. yellow. Yeah, I think it's the white. white. Uh, it's not quite that. It's still, she pieces together. It's like, yeah, this is, there's value to this cause. And so she follows it. Um, still maintaining her brown Aja tendencies, though. I so like I, I want to hear... Did we get Ken's Aja? And I know we didn't get Kyle's. I, uh, at first blush, I was thinking I probably would end up, or want to be blue, but if green is the battle Aja, that's where I want to be. Forget all them anyway. I'd rather be a warder. There you go. Those guys. Yeah, you can be my servant. Those guys are wicked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, aside from that, the whole, you know, bound to an Aes Sedai. I have, I'm tempted to say the black Aja. Nice. But for <laughs> for very spoiler reasons, and so I don't want to... Oh, really? So I don't Got want it. to uh, say anything. Although, yeah, anyways. But uh, if I had to pick between the rest of them, probably probably brown, um, because I really like Varen. Oh, yeah? Um, because I like, I like that she gets into the, all the really deep philosophy. She knows, like, the dragon cycle and all that stuff. But she also can break that mold and go out and actually do something. Um, yeah, I like the knowledge that comes with uh, the brown acha. All right, right on. You said something earlier, Craig, that was in my notes for what I'd like to see in the future, and that's I'd like to see the I said I, the houses of the Hogwarts houses, I guess you know, um, flushed out a little bit better because mm-hmm. yeah, they're they're very kind of broad stroke. This is what you're supposed to think when you hear this this uh, aja, you know. I'd like to see a little bit more depth as the books progress. Right on. Um, I'll tell you one thing I'd like to see as the books go on, and this is going to a point that Ryan just made about how there's less world building in this book. Uh, I really felt that because, like you said, when we get to Tarvalin, yes, they he spends some time describing the walls and the buildings and the shapes and the colors and everything. Uh, and so you get a really great sense when you go into Tarvalin of what you're walking into. It's very cinematic and interesting. Uh, and then, as you go through the book, Rand gets to Kyrian, and he doesn't really describe it much beyond there's a city outside the walls that's, like, where the poor people hang out and party, and then there's the cool kid club in the middle, and so you get a, a social sense of what's going on, but he doesn't describe very much, I, I don't think, and it, or if he did, it wasn't in such a way that it was as mm-hmm. memorable to me, mm-hmm. and the same thing with Falma. When they get to Falma, uh, he says, ah, there's some cobblestones, and it's on the ocean. And that's all you get. It's it's interesting, too, because I wonder if... I mean, I don't want to, like, throw too much credit his way, because definitely there should be 
descriptions of each place. Um, but if I if I can have a question for you with that in mind, what's the one thing that you remember most about Kyrian? Um, the great game. The game. The, the, the game. great game. Yeah. So it's the political atmosphere, I think, that's important to remember about Kyrian and not necessarily the physical buildings and, and places and, and how it's actually made up. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Tarvalin is such a central place to this world, I think that he spends more time uh, describing that. Now, that's not to say that he shouldn't describe Kyrian and how it looks more, but I think the social and political atmosphere that is in Kyrian is what we're supposed to take out of that. It's well, nice. I guess um, what I feel like he does so much description anyway. I'm like, well, why'd you leave those out? Yeah, uh, that's, and in that's fact, fair. That's one of fair. one of my uh, I, I wrote down a few Tolkien references, and one of them is simply long windedness <laughs> <laughs> with description. So listen to this passage. I can't remember where it is exactly. I think it's um, oh, it must be in Falma. When palanquin or soldier passed, both poor folk, with only a curling line or two, worked on their dirty clothes, and the richer, with shirts, vests, and dresses covered from shoulder to waist in intricately embroidered patterns, bowed and remained bent until the Shan-Chan were gone. Like, that's a single sentence with all this description, and it's like, I got to the end of that sentence when I was reading, and I went, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) I had to go back and read it again, because there's so many commas and tangents and descriptions Mm -hmm. in a single sentence. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, give me a paragraph on Kyrian. Yeah. I think one thing also that lends slightly to why there may not be that is, uh, what is in Tarvalin? You have... The White Tower. It's uh, there. It's a very like you talked about being a central place there. Um, jumping ahead just a little bit there, you know, the Stone of Tear. Whenever we're in a place that has a iconic location that something's happening, he takes the time to make sure you know what visually that is. Whereas in Kyrian, there's and uh, Falma, there's not really an iconic thing touristy building that people are coming <laughs> to see. Okay. Um, so 20 bucks will get you to the viewing platform on the white tower. Yeah. <laughs> 36 bucks actually. And yeah, anyway, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious if maybe that's just in, in his mind as, as he's planning out, like, okay, they need to know what this landmark looks like that he does it then on some things and doesn't yeah. do it in others. There, there's not that there. Uh, let's go to some other bullet points. Ken, I, I think I told you you were up next. I was going to steamroller it over you. Well, that's all right. But I, I was going to say that the, Big takeaway from Kyrie and also is the return of Tom Maryland. Yay. Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. That was a good bit. So, like that. And uh, also, can we? I guess we're jumping all over the book. Uh, Tom Maryland, Ninja Badass, also. Um, what does he do? When oh, he, with, when the guy jumps out of yeah, the closet. After, after he comes back from the game and finds his. his he's like, uh, R. Kelly, what are you doing here? And he stabs him. <laughs> Find, like, I was finds trapped. his girl dead and all of a sudden knives and swinging and it's like, okay, nice. You know? Oh, uh, that was really sad. It, well, well, it was terribly oh. sad. I mean, he comes and it's like, oh, look, she's asleep. And a little more than asleep. You know, I, that's uh, sad and everything. But I want to I piggyback off of that scene and, and, and multiple others that happen within The Great Hunt. I was having a discussion with my brother-in-law, who's a big Game of Thrones fan. Oh, and, boy, uh, do I have some things to yes. say about Martin. But uh, there's an interesting, there's an interesting uh, I guess argument that happens when you're talking Game of Thrones Wheel of Time, people say, well, Game of Thrones is just so much more violent and so much more brutal or whatever, <laughs> which I I don't necessarily agree with. I mm. think that Martin's writing style, he dwells on that more 
But there yeah. are some really awful things I've that happen in the Wheel of Time. Well, yeah, just I got a quote here for you. That you we don't. Them. That he doesn't necessarily dwell on the on the blood and gore and sex as much as Martin, or really hardly at all compared to Martin. But the events are. Still but there. the events that yeah. are happening. I mean, Pat and Fane skin some people alive and stakes things to barn doors, and I mean, it's just horrendous. So yeah, I really appreciate one. you bringing that up because. Seeing her the way that she was and, and knowing how Tom feels about her. Here, yeah. listen listen to this. The Trollocs scrambled away, drawing scythe-like swords and raising spiked axes. In moments, shrieks and bellows rose from where the villagers were bound. Pleas for mercy and children's screams were cut off by solid thuds and unpleasant squishing mm-hmm. noises like melons being broken. Oh my gosh! That's kind of descriptive. That's, I remember mm-hmm. listening to that piece and going, oh, jeez. Oh, uh. and, and it's not, I mean, it's it's not like Martin, where Martin dwells on those in almost every, I mean, every action, excruciating, action detail. excruciating detail, but it almost makes it even worse to read it because it's so out of the ordinary for Jordan to dwell on squishing melon noises Yeah, um, that you're just like, oh, man. <laughs> so anyway. Kind of well, grody. Yeah. Sorry, well, I didn't mean to derail oh, you there. No, not totally not derailed because anytime we can talk about Tom, it's cool. But the the other thing I liked about uh, having him back, well, in that scene, plus the one where he talks to, to Rand when Rand finds him alive and, and talks about getting away from the fade or fighting the fade and all of that, and it, it brings back to the first uh, to the first book basically how you're left after the first book going, well, how can Tom possibly be alive? Well, this kind of describes how he could be alive is, look, he actually has some fighting chops, which you kind of figured there's there's more to him than just being a simple glee man. And, and now you get to see it. And even in just cameo appearances in this book, he really becomes quite a cool character. And I, he probably becomes my favorite character of the book, and he's not in it very much. Well, in, I love his description of how he got out of the whole thing. Yeah. He just... He just the murderer wasn't interested in me. Wasn't mm-hmm. yeah. It's, he was more he, interested in you he guys. He gave me a little memory. He, he stabbed me and gave me a little token to remember him by, and then took off after you guys. I was like, oh, that was. Which I'd be really interested to see how, like, how did he really walk away from that? Because Moraine always says that even a nick from like a Mirdral's blade can kill. Well, yeah. I might have like and kicked so, him in the shit. And, well, yeah. he's, I'm, he's still I'm wondering. Yeah, I'm wondering. He's still limping. I mean, well, I mean he's he definitely limping. But, leg, but but if he were cut at all, I would think that he would have died. So maybe the Mirdral just like. Kneecapped him. I don't well, know. I think <laughs> the whole point is a blade that wasn't his. Could be. Blade, something Could like that. be. The, the whole point of this uh, Tom Marilyn in White Bridge and showing up again, I think, is at this point to tell us that there's a whole lot more to Tom Marilyn than meets the eye. Oh, that was, oh yes. And there so, is. so here's this guy who can get stabbed by a murderall and walk away from it, limping, maybe, but walk away from it. Tom right. is yeah. like, have you ever seen uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico? With uh, Antonio Banderas. Yeah, 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 long time ago. He is like the mariachi, who is just like this guitar <laughs> slinging yeah. badass. Like, he plays his music, and then he just goes and... He's know. the mariachi from Desperado. He is the mariachi of the Wheel of Time. That that was one of my other takeaways for future books, is I want to see how Tom Marilyn becomes Tom Marilyn. I mean, if hopefully that gets fleshed out a little bit more. My one quote from him, I'm only an old gleeman. What could I possibly be... Or who could I possibly be dangerous to? Uh... Yeah, Tom. Everybody. <laughs> Who could you possibly Oh, be? yeah. <laughs> so I'm excited to see that. Uh, cool. Other stuff you guys want to bring up? I don't, uh, don't want to make this the Craig show. Let's, so let's, bring up, let's bring up The Shadow. The Shadow? And uh, th- 
just the the I guess the dark side, if you will, all of the all of the dark friends and all of the goings on for Team Evil that's happening. I mean, we get it right in the prologue. The whole prologue yeah. is this like dark friend convention dark friend convention that's happening <laughs> oh yeah that was among the, oh my gosh i completely yeah. forgot about the, the, man, the man who calls himself boars and it's interesting because this prologue really sets the tone for how widespread the dark ones touch on the world is um and how much how many dark friends there are in the prologue he talks the man who calls himself boars is uh is looking around at all the cloaked figures or whatever, and he can notice, he notices small details that mark people from certain areas of the world, and he sees uh, a merchant, a warrior, a commoner, uh, someone from Kandor, Kyrian, Saldea, Gaeldan. Um, he sees a tinker even. And so there's basically, basically just painting the picture of there are dark friends everywhere. Um, and as we get through the book, we even know, we, we learn that there are dark friends within the white tower itself. Um, and so I really like the idea and especially in this book that it's, it's not necessarily world building, but it is to an extent that we're seeing well, certainly scene setting. Yeah. But yeah. we're seeing how diverse, like there's, you've got the regular people, you've got the light side, but the dark side feels so much more overwhelming. There's so many more dark friends out there than you think. I, w I was struck by this intro in a few different ways, uh, but one of the things about it was that, yes, like you say, it shows the, um, the wonderful diversity that the uh, dark side tends to go after. Uh, you know, they want somebody from everywhere. They want uh, every walk of life and every city and every town, all this stuff. But uh, I was also struck by how by the end of the book, he doesn't, Jordan doesn't come out and say, and here's this person who was at that black council, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. he, he, we're left to interpret that Leandrin was, was it Leandrin mm -hmm. that, yeah. Yeah. that betrayed him? That she was probably there, but that's, it's never spelled out. Mm -hmm. And we don't know who the man who calls himself Boers is. Except he's a child of the light, I believe. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Cause he puts on his white cloak. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. But it doesn't say who, which, which. Because we've met several named children of the light. We've got Child mm -hmm. Bayar. We've got Jeff from Born, Bornhold. We've got a couple of other uh, Valders. Yeah, we've got a couple other children of the light that we've actually seen or, seen or met in the book. Yeah, they've yeah. done mm -hmm. stuff. And this, and and who knows? Maybe this is not one that we've met so far. But I but I, I like what he does there because uh, he well, he leaves it up to you to figure it out. Uh, he's not holding your hand the way that he did for the first kind of half of the first book. Yeah, uh, he, he puts it out there and I'm assuming he's playing a long game here and that we'll learn more about this council and the people in it as we travel to different cities and meet different people. Um, so it's it'll probably be a lot of books in the future before we learn everything about what happened there. It's really interesting too, because I think it, it sets the tone for how much of an advantage the, the, you know, team evil has the dark side has over the, over the light side right now because all of these dark friends are terrified of either the Myrdral or the Forsaken who shows up um, and these Forsaken are in the background pulling the strings on a global level making things happen for the dark side or you know for the shadow team bad guy team bad guy 
And so they have a sense of unity, even though one particular dark friend doesn't know that they're working with another dark friend. But there's there's a higher level of manipulation that's going on where Team Lightside doesn't have that. It's basically up to Moraine and Suan Shanchi right now to just kind of react and counter what's going on. And they're fumbling in the dark to figure out what the hell they're going to do with the Dragon Reborn that they've just found. Mm -hmm. And there's no cohesive plan like there could be for the for the shadow now when you get into a different forsaken or whatever who knows the other they you'd think that they'd be working together or not we don't know anything yet but well doesn't lanfear says something about like what ishmael thinks he's pulling the strings but i am and and they and they scheme and plot against each other but just in this prologue you can see with this giant council of dark friends or whatever You've got a particular Forsaken who is pulling the strings in all of those countries across the world that we just listed. And so there is a very, there is a much bigger plot at play for the, and it's a huge advantage for Team Evil versus what's going on with the light where they're just trying to figure out and react to what's happening. That's, I mean, in fantasy in general, one of the tropes that tends to exist is that the darks, the dark side uh, always will um, sow this inability to trust the people next to you into the light side by by dropping in a few covert people here and there. And that's one of the first things that they do to try and undercut the the strengths of the good guys. If it was as easy as, you know, if, if all the bad guys were Trollocs and you could tell because everyone looked like a Trolloc, um, it's not hard to, to, you know, you don't have any problems about talking about plans with other humans because they're not a Trolloc. Um, right. so, so I appreciate the fact that following very conventional methods here you gotta the the dark the the shadow is working against the light by first sowing the discord and inability to work together yeah i was thinking about that because there are a few times when rand will be walking around and kind of scared of what's gonna jump out of the shadows and he's like it could be trollocs or even worse dark friends and i'm like why is that worse i would much rather fight some you know dark friend who's a human and i can you know match strength with maybe with my <laughs> fat never mind uh then a trollic yeah who's gonna yeah. yeah who's gonna just take me out no problem but then you think about it from what you were the perspective you were just talking about ryan and the fact that the strength of the dark friends is that you don't know who they are so if, mm-hmm. a, if a dark friend walks out from the shadows you're like oh it's just some guy and then he pulls out a knife and slits your throat like yeah that'd be yeah. pretty scary he dark friend you in the back <laughs> you know if, if a trollic comes around the corner you go stabby stabby if a guy walks in the corner you're like i don't know do i stabby stabby or do i talky talky what do i do here <laughs> i feel like this is a, i feel like this is a pretty good time i want to that bring quote up. forever <laughs> <laughs> i feel like this is a pretty good time to bring up something that's been going on through dragon mount and through wheel of time community for 20 years is the speculation that Bella herself is a dark friend. What? What? There, what? there are even Wait. bumper stickers out there that say Bella is a dark friend. Bella, Bella, Bella. The, the horse. horse. Oh. Egwene's horse. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, totally not relevant, but if it, there you go. Uh, but I thought funny. I'd introduce you guys to <laughs> Bella is a dark friend theory. Oh, boy. I, I feel like I've just been invited I immediately want to buy I the shouldn't. t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it can go right next to my I am a stick t-shirt. <laughs> well, um... I'll get a tattooed on my rear end. Huh? <laughs> Bella is a dark friend. It's funny talking about trust, by the way. I That was one of the notes I wrote down 
early in the book. It's good heavens, doesn't anyone actually trust anyone else in this world? Because Rand is suspicious of everyone. Lan and Moraine, who have been, you know, friends, cohorts for generations, are having their little bicker fest. I'm like, doesn't anybody get along? Seriously? I, I get the you same feeling. You should go feeling. to Bickerfest. It's a great show. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> right after Dark Friend Con. I, I absolutely agree with you on this because one of the things that I'm growing tired with is I understand that it's a community and a cultural tr- thing here with oh, you can't trust an Aes Sedai. At a certain point, someone should earn your trust when yeah. they've done so much. And I get, you know, dark friends will play the long game. Things like oh, that. my I gosh. Get all that. When Moraine shows up at the end of the book and Rand's like, I don't want you here. It's like, yeah. I, I just, you want to grab him by the face and just smack him a lot. Exactly. Because it's like, you, this person has backed you so many times, so many times, you need to be trusting this person. And I'll tell you, it, you know, again, I've read ahead a little bit. It's not getting any better. <laughs> oh. it's, it's interesting, too, because Moraine does the whole Dumbledore in Harry Potter 5 where she refuses to talk to, to Rand for like a month or so. In the first of this book, he's he's out practicing the sword with Lan and he's talking about how Moraine basically told him, hey, you're the Dragon Reborn and then doesn't talk to him forever. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's got to play mind games with him thinking like, what is going on? Is she just trying to <clears throat> use me? Is she plotting schemes on what to do with me now that I've been, you know, now that she's told me that I'm the Dragon Reborn, even though Rand at that point doesn't doesn't 100% buy into the fact that he's right. actually the dragon. Which gets um, annoying too, by the way. It's like, I'm not the dragon, I'm Tamil <laughs> Thor. So like, Shut up. All right, you are. Everybody so, knows it. Well, so it's interesting to see that distrust. And, and in the, <clears throat> while we're still talking about distrust, Something that I thought was really, really interesting in this book is that Perrin and Matt find out that Rand is actually the dragon in this book. Right. Mm-hmm. And their reactions are vastly different. Um, I think they're both scared uh, just as much as Rand is. I mean, they this is their childhood friend, their best friend that they've grown up with. And all of a sudden, he's the most feared and hated figure in all of history, according to Randland. Mm-hmm. And Matt totally freaks out. And Perrin kind of takes his more calm, like logical thought process through it. Um, his wolfy approach to it. But it's well, and, and, and as you I bring think that that's up, that's why he's yeah. able to take. Yeah, the, that's the why response. I think that's, I think exactly that's a great way to bring that up. Is that he's like, well, I have something that scares the crap out of me as well that I don't understand, and so he can empathize with yep. with uh, Rand a little bit more, even though they're completely different things. That are happening to each each character, but it's still big deal happening to both of them. But so. but it's really interesting to see the way that they they react because for the first I don't know half of the book when they're going on the adventure, Rand and Perrin or, or uh, Matt and Perrin are being kind of junior high to Rand because oh he's wearing a lord's coat and acting like he's a lord and and you know Rand had blown up at them and said i don't need you i don't need you and and out of out of trying to protect them but they don't know that but let me's under a ton of pressure there's all that high school channel abc family movie moment where uh, Rand starts wearing (laughs) jabos and living on the hill exactly there's this whole high school thing going on you're not even my real mom (laughs) but it's interesting to see that moment because you know they actually catch him pulling the dragon banner out of his saddlebags and Mm. looking at it and and Matt immediately thinks, oh, he's a lord. He's got this banner. And then they realize what it is. And they're like, oh, oh, this crap. is something different. That's a great moment. Um, and I, oh, no, never mind. I had a thought on that, but it's gone. 
what do you think? Do you want to say anything else on that, or should we no. move on? Let's move on. Let's do one more point before we get to Corey. We'll bring him on in just a minute here. Um, but uh, in the first part of the book, any anything else you guys want to bring up? Oh, I have one that I just remembered. Uh, did anybody else catch the contrails? Contrails. It, mm. it turns out all the conspiracy theorists in in our real world they were correct, and that the contrails are what destroyed the world. You guys know what contrails are? I know what contrails are mm, in the no. real world. Condensation but. trails, like mm-hmm. when you look up in the jets. Yeah. And you say, no. Uh, oh yeah! When they used the portal stone and Rand and Huron and um, Celine are walking around, or, and uh, and loyal, loyal as well. Loyal. Uh, he looks up in the sky and sees contrails, mm-hmm. and yeah, so I they're walking through this like dead world, and there's jets. So I'm like, maybe it's just like a dead zone in an alternate reality, 20th century type thing, where you know there's contrails going over. I thought that was crazy. Yeah. So if we talk about the portal stones, the which is a concept I love because uh, being able to step into the alternate dimension concept and say, hey, we have our world, and then there's all these other slight variations of our world. And the way that the, it's explained in this one, I really I do like, um, especially considering the nature of that world. It's, it's always moving and shifting a little bit, and they explain it that... Um, depending on how realistic or how close to re- the reality mm-hmm. that actually uh, became uh, is how physical the or how much form the that realm has yeah it's kind of hazy if it if it's not yeah you yeah. could go into a place it's like all hey like it's so far out in left field that you wouldn't be able to touch anything it's not actually existing yeah. um i love that concept and uh the whole premise that hey we're getting ahead of the dark friends by being in the realm where the shadow won the shadow has won previously already mm-hmm. um and whether that's you know you we could say that yeah that, you know they're in a nuclear wasteland or something like that contrails uh, i'm telling you <laughs> <laughs> but i i want to know because the connection hasn't been made strong enough yet for me to for sure stand on this celine being there uh-huh. um she gives him the story oh i got i fell asleep next to this and i ended up here and we obviously know this is bull and we obviously know that you are not every single thing that she says is bull (laughs) yeah we we know this is not but she's hot so whatever so yeah Yeah, it doesn't matter i i I admit i might be taken in (laughs) (laughs) but i i i'm curious as to her knowledge of these other dimensions and her knowledge of being able to travel around uh, in other realms. And well, she's been around for like thousands of years, right? So, well, it's yeah, interesting too. Just on, done a lot on of this subject traveling. of of portal stones and travel. It totally comes back to bite them later in the series when they try to travel via portal stone. Oh, in the, the, in the, the book, time. you mean? Yeah. yeah, in the book, it comes back to bite them because they they try to go through the ways. They can't go through the ways because the black wind shows up, and then yeah. they decide, okay, we'll do the portal stones because we've done that before. Um, and then they lose time. And the, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't which, save them any time. Which is really interesting because the whole reason that they didn't want to travel yeah, the, via the that whole, way yeah. was because Rand, or we haven't even talked about the whole the whole reason that Rand and Perrin go on the hunt for the horn isn't for the horn. It's for the dagger that's, that's uh, right. you know, connected Santa. to Matt. And so the whole reason they didn't want to travel by horse was one, to lose time, but Matt would have died um, in the real world trying to travel that distance all the way down. And so they're mm-hmm. trying to save time when they're when they portal stone travel the for the second time. And it's weird because they 
do save time in according to Matt's lifespan. Right. Yeah. But they totally lose four or five months of real world time, which I, which I don't know how I feel about it because it's kind of – it's almost like a like a plot cheat because it gives really? a chance – in my, it gives a chance for everything to like settle and be where it needs to be. See, and so, here's how I felt about it: was that it, I, I would have felt more cheated if they had used the portal stone the second time and it had worked out just like before. Okay, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, yeah. Where these, the whole thing with the first bit that they do with Celine is that these things are unpredictable and we don't read the symbols well enough to know how they mm-hmm. work. And so we're really just kind of shooting in the dark here. And so the second time they go up, if it had worked out perfectly, I would have been like, come on. Mm-hmm. But in this one, but it this was... this time it shows the payout. Yeah, for, yeah it, it, it kind of screwed up a little you bit. You could have easily written in there that, hey, you know, they made it work, and then you go, oh, Taviran, hey, congratulations, <laughs> it works. Mm-hmm. But I, I looked at this section, and I actually, for me, I, I'm along the lines with Craig, like, I'm, I'm glad that it worked out the way it did, but it also gives you this pocket of time in which to level up your other characters, mm-hmm. if you think, yeah. you know, well, RPG, whatever, yeah. the the girls have the chance to, to be in their story, um... Nynaeve has gone through and become an accepted, which the process, that little thing. By that, the way, that, that cult-like yeah. rituals. Yeah, kind we of, should hit that. That was crazy. Maybe next episode. Yeah. Uh, speaking of maybe next episode, we, we've we got maybe about 10 minutes, a little more left in this episode. So I do want to bring Corey on. Uh, let's see how muted he is. Corey, are you there? Am I muted? Oh, no, you're good. I got you. We haven't put you to sleep yet. <laughs> so no, I, I'm still awake. I'm hoping for a, a bit of a, a halftime report uh, so we can take some notes and then go make another episode later. And, and orange uh, slices and Capri Sun. Exactly. Oh, orange yeah. slices and Capri Sun. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, what what are your thoughts so far, Corey? Anything that we screwed up or anything you want us to talk about? Well, I thought it funny that you mentioned that there was that uh, bumper sticker about Bella being a dark friend. <laughs> But there's actually a lot of theorists who theorize that Bella is actually the creator herself. So <laughs> there's no uh, evidence later on. But you know, as they're reading the books, you know, these are just you know, common ideas that pop up. So they range the gamut. So we won't, you know, put uh, too much truth in those. But I started reading this series back in high school. This was many moons ago, back in 2003. Um, you know, I began reading it, and I finished at the last book came out. So. Uh, I was able to finish up my second read-through this year. That was before I even uh, recognized the show. Uh, so it would kind of, you know, came full circle that I was able to go through these books again. But I echo a lot of y'all's points where that The Great Hunt was a lot more enjoyable than The Eye of the World. The Eye of the World was great in that you, know, you start, you know, as a bunch of farm boys and you you go on this journey with them to say that, you know, oh, there's not just the farm. There's all these amazing and creative things that are so mysterious, but they just might try to murder you. So the world is kind of fun in that way. <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things about, yeah, like, fantasy go. in general. That's kind of a thing. Like, oh, isn't it? Oh, Mistborn is a great example where we were talking about uh, about what worlds you would want to spend time in. And I was like, yeah, somehow, for some reason, I really want to go spend time in the Mistborn world, even though it's, like, dirty and nasty, and you're probably a slave, and everybody's (laughs) trying to kill you, but it's amazing. And I might die. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Anyway, sorry, go on, Corey. Yeah, but just like uh, y'all, there's a lot of, uh, you know, love and, you know, 
intrigue about the Aes Sedai. I think they're one of the uh, the better written organizations in a fantasy book because, uh, in a way, they're mirrored after you know like real life religious orders of sisters. You know, you go to the novice accepted, and you'll like different religious orders. There's these charisms of all the different colors, and uh, getting to go you know kind of behind the veil, so to speak, into the tower. And learn about these mysterious Aes Sedai because you know everybody treats them with an air of mystery and distrust. Later on, you know when asked about, somebody says, uh, besides when you ask an Aes Sedai, and when they start going all mysterious on you, they wouldn't give you a straight answer if you asked them if the sky was blue. And so you know they kind of wonder, you know, what's going on with these people, and you know why? Why does even Lan, who is such you know a you know a respectable warrior, he's fearless, you know, but when the when the Amaralyn seat shows up, he's like, all right, you know. Listen here, Rand, you might want to cool your jets a little bit. This woman, I don't think she's afraid of anything. So getting that insight of going in there, seeing what all they do, uh, it was really great to to learn more about it. And really just, this sets a great framework for the books coming up later. Uh, and just one more last note on the uh, the Dark Friends and the Trollocs. I think Robert Jordan does a great job of painting an enemy who isn't really apparent. Like, you know what's evil. When a Trolloc shows up, a Drakkar, a Mirdral, that's evil because it's trying to kill you directly. It's It's got a mission. But these Dark Friends, yeah, that's the more subtle mission of, of the Dark One we'll see going forward here is that, you know, it's this weapon of distrust and division. When everybody's doubting each other, you know, nobody really wins because, you know, that's how you defeat your foe. You divide and conquer. And so that's really a great theme we'll see going forward. So I got a question for you, Corey, because I know you are in, uh, you're, you're a theologian. Now, are you in grad school right now? Uh, yes, it, grad school. Grad school, okay. So in, in theology. So I got to ask, did you, like me, catch all, all of the tons and tons of Jesus symbolism in this book? Oh, yes, of course. You know, there's a lot of, he pulls not only from Christianity, but a lot of different religions uh, as well, you know, with the Wheel of Time and all that and the great pattern. But uh, Robert Jordan, he's definitely, you know, been a great study of, of theology and different world religions to weave together this story. And that's why I think it captures the imagination, because you read this and you say, hey, wait a minute. I recognize that. Yeah, I, um, I, Probably because I'm not as familiar with other religions. I mean, you know, you you learn, but you're not immersed in it the way that uh, we tend to be immersed in Christianity. So when those things mm -hmm. pop out, I really noticed them uh, more than yeah. maybe references really to other religions. Yeah, but uh, Kyle just referenced one with his hands when Nynaeve comes out of the uh, the trials, which was one of my favorite chapters, by the way, yeah. if not my absolute mm -hmm. favorite chapter of the book. When she comes out, she has the thorns in her hands, and she pulls the thorns out of the middle of her palm, and, and she gets healed, but it doesn't heal the scars. It's mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, there's well, some Jesus um, symbols. And, yeah. and to that as well, Rand has... He's been marked his on his herons, palms yeah. as well, yeah. and then and at the same time, Rand's wound in his yeah, I was side. Yeah, about to say the yep. stabbing in the side that won't heal. Um, and then Tom quotes the Koreathon cycle, the the dragon mythology stuff, and he says, uh, "In the pit of doom shall his blood free men from the shadow." And like this is pretty clear yeah. reference to uh, to Jesus there. Anyway, well, I'm, that's I'm, pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm curious. In, based in on that way, Rand has uh, he's very much the Messiah, the Messiah figure. You know, with these prophecies, you know, when you have like the Old Testament talking about the Messiah who is to come. And then instead of, you know, reading about it, we're seeing these prophecies being fulfilled before our very eyes. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to, uh, we had a, a little discussion in Eye of the World about how 
supposedly this world is, you know, a few ages after our own, um, potentially, uh, that we, like, we could be living in the first age now, and this is the third, fifth, fourth, whatever it is, it's I don't know. The, the known third, by some as the third the age, third age or yeah. whatever. Um, I'm uh-huh. curious as to how much of, you could attribute how much of these uh, messianic symbolism things being a the wheel reweaving this concept into itself that we carry with us now just being reweaved into the third age yeah did that make sense craig you yeah 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 i think i see what you're saying Uh, i'll give you a very moraine answer and just uh cop out by saying the wheel weaves is the wheel wills (laughs) (laughs) oh man you know what that reminds me of when when, uh people say that that reminds me of uh when people say it's all part of god's plan and i mean (laughs) <laughs> depending on how religious you are that may or may not be true uh but boy does it get infuriating sometimes like yeah. i don't want to hear about god's plan i, I, just, tell I, me. Think, <laughs> I think it'll be very interesting especially from a theological standpoint to watch um especially the Aes die as we get through the series because rand is the dragon reborn or he's essentially the jesus figure um and which Aes die choose to support him and how much um, how much, I guess, or the Aes Sedai that chooses to defy him or not accept him as the Messiah or messianic figure, because, you know, going yeah. back to the biblical analogy of like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and like, who's going to follow this prophesied figure and who's not. And so it'll be interesting to watch as this established, uh, culture or not, not necessarily culture, but this established, religion of Aes Sedai mm-hmm. um, and what they've known for thousands of years, how is this going to shake that up? I'll tell Ooh. you. It, oh, sorry. sorry. Go ahead, which, which actually makes a, this is a very <laughs> philosophical theological point here. Um, being that we have that grouping there and we realize that Rand is now fulfilling prophecy and he's doing, you know, we, the markings in his hands um, eventually as he fulfills other parts of these prophecies here, people seeing you know, they see that he's fulfilling it, and some of them immediately drop, you know, the Lord Dragon, and they're immediately worshiping. But the others, the you know, the others who decide they're not going to follow, I mean, that's something you can apply right now. It's like, people yeah. are like, well, if, if God were real, you know, and he showed up, I'd believe or whatever. Well, maybe you wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Maybe you wouldn't. This is a, a direct comparison to what we might be now in terms of, you know, if if God showed up or if something like that happened, you may not be as quick to... To running and dropping to one what knee. Uh, that exactly <laughs> <laughs> um, oh yeah, and, th- and then again, you know, as we keep saying it, that's all going to play really, really well into this whole distrust thing. That you know, you you always have you know the creator, but there's also the enemy that you'll never have to forget about because he'll always be there, weaving his little threads into the pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things I love about fantasy literature in general, and definitely the Wheel of Time so far is that there are things like this where we're pulling in all of these uh, these ideas from Christianity, from the Bible, and uh, references to God and Jesus and all these things. But you, if you if you know that stuff and if you believe in that stuff, it's a cool extra layer and some things to think about. But you don't have to. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. that about this stuff. You if you. Yeah. If you're a, an atheist or an agnostic and you just don't care, or if maybe you grew up in a different religion and you don't get all these references that he's making, you don't have to. Uh, 
This is not yeah. this. I mean, and it's still a good story. It's a great book. It's just you know an extra layer there for you. Yeah, you don't have to worry yeah, it's about intriguing either way. You don't have to worry about subliminal messaging in there. You know, trying to convince <laughs> you to, to to join and believe or anything. Right. This isn't L. Ron Hubbard stuff. So. Well, oh boy, <laughs> I'm glad we just came As to we... the end of the episode because uh, <laughs> that'll stop me from from saying some stuff. Uh, anyway, let's uh, so let's adjourn. We will reconvene for uh, I guess basically the second half. We Corey, talked. Have any final thoughts? Well, we talked mostly about the first half. Um, and so, yeah, I guess we could do some final thoughts. Well, I was uh, thinking for Corey while we've got him on. Oh, I'm sorry. Corey's final thoughts. Yeah. Do you have uh, any last oh. parting words for us? I was just going to teach you a new word since you talked about that little something Ooh. extra. Down in the south, we call that lanyop. 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 Yeah. A little something extra. And that, and oh, okay. A little something extra. Lanyop. Yeah. Spell that for yeah, me. A little bit lanyop. <laughs> L-A-G-N-I-A-P-P-E. I think you're just throwing letters out. <laughs> Let the seven capital Q comma Kerbugle Smuck. Right, it's spelled just like everything else in the Wheel of Time books. So, yeah. uh, cool, Corey. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm I'm glad we finally got one of our uh, five dollar donors on. We've tried to do it a few times, and sometimes scheduling is it's just like you a people nightmare. are busy and you listen to podcasts because you don't have to be there at the right time to listen to it. <laughs> No, but uh, well, thank but, you all so much for having me. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasure, and uh, I so hopefully we'll have you back on for something in January, maybe the first uh, uh, Dragon Reborn episode, something. Anyway, uh, and thank you to everybody for listening. We are not done with the Great Hunt. In case you didn't catch that, yes, there's a whole lot more book to talk about. So we'll come back and talk about uh, the second half, uh, mostly, and <laughs> some other stuff that we have to bring up. So you guys good? Until then, yeah, I good. think so. All right, thanks, Corey. We will see you all Thank then. Y'all.